Welcome to A Teaspoon of Healing, where we explore the pathways to wellness and vibrant living. Listen to personal stories of healing and interviews with experts. It's time to open a doorway to healing in your life through positive changes. Here is your host, Dawn Damari. Hi, I'm Dawn Damari, and you're listening to A Teaspoon of Healing. This is episode 16 of the podcast. This week's topic is nutrition, and my guests are going to talk about a whole food, plant-based diet. My guests are James and Dahlia Marin. They are both holistic registered dietitians, and they have a company called Married to Health. And they are actually husband and wife in real life, and they met in college. So we'll hear about that, and we'll hear about their whole food, plant-based diet that they follow and they advocate. And you will learn about how to handle picky eaters if you have kids and how to avoid getting pre-diabetes or even progressing to type 2 diabetes and how to treat sugar addictions and much more. James is also an environmental nutritionist. We're going to talk a little bit about what that is. Dahlia is trained as a functional nutritionist and Dahlia is actually going to also share her personal journey of healing from Hashimoto's and PCOS. If you have any questions for me, or if you want to be a guest on the show, visit teaspoonofhealing.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Please consult a physician or other health professional before undertaking changes in lifestyle or wellness habits. The author claims no responsibility to any person or entity for any liability, loss, or damage caused or alleged to be caused directly or indirectly as a result of use, application, or interpretation of the information presented herein. And before we get into our interview, let's hear from one of our sponsors, Golf Tours. Hi, this is Goff, owner of Goff Tours, specializing in stand-up paddleboarding or surfing lessons. I even do snorkeling. You can reach me here. Orange County has what you're looking for. You can contact me via email at gofftours at gmail.com or mobile number is 949-338-5937, gofftours.com. Hi, I'm Dawn Damari, and you're listening to A Teaspoon of Healing. Well, today I have two guests with me. They're a husband and wife team from a company called Married to Health, James and Dahlia Marin. They are both holistic registered dietitians. Hi, James and Dahlia. Hi, Dawn. Hi, Hi, everyone. Hi, how are you guys doing? We are great. How are you? Absolutely. I'm doing good, doing well, and thank you so much for being on the podcast with me. Thank you for for having us. us. We're really excited. So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about your background and how the two of you met? Yeah, so we actually met in college. (laughs) So we went to Cal Poly Pomona and we met and Delia fell madly in love with me there. And it was, I'm just kidding. No, he's (laughs) over-exaggerating. Let's take a step back. (laughs) No, on my first day there, it was my very first day. I went to my second class and I saw these big teeth again and they were in my first class too. (laughs) So we just ended up having three classes together in two days a week. And so that was like a seven hour span. So we just started out. Studying friends. friends and yeah. yeah, there were three of us. Along the way, we lost one of our friends. <laughs> she switched majors, so 
it was the two of us who remained. And then from there, over time, you know, we were studying nutrition and dietetics. You know, fast forward a little bit, we started Married to Health kind of as a Facebook page, basically because we're getting so many questions from friends and family and like, what do we do for this? Send us this link. And then on our Facebook page, we were just sharing stuff nonstop. So it kind of just became, let's start a page and let it just be a, mm. a resource center for everyone. So, yeah. Oh, okay. And then it grew into... Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So then we got a website. We got clientele. We partner with medical groups. We get patients that we see online and in person. And it just grew and grew and grew. So mm-hmm. it's it's really great. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. So when did... I'll ask you first, Dahlia. When did you decide you wanted to be a dietitian? So that was kind of part of my personal journey to health. I... As an adolescent and a teenager, I was always really unhealthy. My doctor, I would go for my checkups or, you know, I was sick pretty often. So every time I would go, my doctor would just tell me, you need to lose weight, you need to lose weight. And it was just kind of this more bullying type of comment rather than helpful. So it wasn't until I was 18 that I was having some issues with my ears. I saw an ear, nose, and throat doctor who pointed out, hey, you have a huge goiter on your thyroid. You should probably see an endocrinologist, a thyroid specialist. So I went, and in one day, they diagnosed me with an autoimmune thyroid disease, Hashimoto's, and I was also diagnosed with prediabetes and polycystic ovarian syndrome. And, you know, as a young teenager, you don't want to be told, here's all this medication. Enjoy your life taking this, you know. Let's see how it goes. And of course, you know, you start taking these medications. Every medication is going to have a side effect. So I just would wake up. And I remember waking up just feeling like, ugh. I would say that every morning when I woke up, ugh. But I was just starting college, and I thought I wanted to be a psychology major. I took a few classes, thought wasn't my thing. And then this was, you know, happening kind of at the same time. So I took a nutrition class just for my own information. And I really got a lot out of it. I really enjoyed it and just started sharing tips that I was learning from that class with others that I knew. And that's when I kind of realized, hey, I really like this. I'm seeing the benefits of it in my life. This is something I want to learn more about. And, you know, that's when I just started taking a few more classes. Nothing that I had committed to yet, but then decided to make that change and decided that, hey, I feel like this is really helping me. I'm seeing the benefits in my life, and I feel like I can help other people along this journey that I'm on. Wonderful. Now, so you had these conditions. So you had Hashimoto's, hypothyroidism, and then you had polycystic ovarian syndrome and prediabetes. And so now you're, you've healed from those, and you're thriving. You're really healthy. So was a lot of it through diet as well as the medications? I would say mostly through diet. Early on, I kind of decided that for the polycystic ovarian syndrome and the prediabetes that I didn't want to medicate myself for that. I really saw lifestyle as a means to an end. So that was when I just started learning about eating less meat. I started kind of cutting out meat, eating more plant-based foods, and really saw how that helped my own health. For my Hashimoto's, when I was first diagnosed, my antibodies and my thyroid-stimulating hormones, so basically my thyroid levels were about 300 times as high as they should be. So I have now, I take maybe 5% of the medication that I used to take for that. So I'm on just the very lowest dose available for thyroid treatment, but I've really put my... Which is unheard of because most people just keep going up and up and up and up. 
so I've kind of come down the other way. So I've really brought my autoimmunity down and I'm really managing it through lifestyle and diet and yeah, trying to be more conscious of my mental health and my physical health and trying to live my life mm-hmm. the most and, functional and way I can. And I think it's good to give context because so many people, I, I, I mean, we see patients all the time with, with a thyroid issue mm-hmm. and we think of diabetes, that's a pancreatic issue and a cellular issue and then PCOS. I mean, so many, so many women nowadays have PCOS. So mm-hmm. to tie it all together, I mean, fast forward what we know now is that this all encompasses our endocrine system. And so when you look at foods, there are foods that can disrupt your endocrine system as well as environmental factors that Mm -hmm. disrupt your endocrine system. And that's why we're seeing so many people with diabetes, PCOS, and thyroid issues because Mm -hmm. it's all part of this intricate and vital system and it's being attacked on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And just the strain that we're putting in our body and with increased body fat, you have increased hormones. And I think that there's a lot of misconception and I can say that firsthand that I didn't understand what was happening to me. So I really chalked it up to my family history. Oh, my mom has diabetes. So, okay, I probably will have it. Or, oh, my mom has a thyroid disease or, you know, my aunt, my sister, whatever. I think I hear that a lot from my patients. And I think that a lot of people feel that their genetics are a life sentence. And they really don't understand that you can take control of that. You can definitely biohack your genes and you can override and really turn on and turn off different genes, like I said, with food. So I think that we really are on a mission to teach others about that, how to use food as medicine, because it can be poison, but it can truly, truly be medicine. Absolutely. That's wonderful. And I really like the point that you guys made that this is all tied together through the endocrine system. All these conditions, and they're pretty prevalent, and they all have that in common. And I think it's wonderful treating that with lifestyle as much as possible, lifestyle changes and diet. Now, James, I wanted to ask you on your background, I read your bio, and you are also an environmental nutritionist as well as a dietitian. So what is an environmental nutritionist? Right. So it's it's basically like it says, environmental nutrition, it takes into account the environment. So you're looking at synthetic chemicals, you're looking at your immediate environment, like what's in your home, what do you clean with, what do you wash your hair with, what makeup do you use, and also your your more outer layer of environment, you know, your neighborhood. Do you live by a big factory? Do you live by... I can't tell you how many patients I have with autoimmune disease and come to find out, yeah, I did grow up next to an agricultural field, or I had a, I remember a case study back in my internship, she grew up next to a paper mill where they used lots of volatile chemicals to produce paper, and they, back then, they would just dump it, you know, in the local creek where she would go play and swim, and so, you know, really environmental factors, and something we always say is without a healthy environment, you can't have a healthy body. And so this is kind of our holistic approach is where we get to know the environment, what's going on in agriculture, you know, what's going on in the plastics industry, what's being leached into our environment so that we can make our patients more aware and have that be a form of healing as well. Mm-hmm. So it's very important. And I think it's so important, not only for consumers, but for health professionals to really Really try to teach your patients that and to really have an understanding of that. Not only is nutrition what carbs and calories and things like that are going into your body, and I think oftentimes it's very compartmentalized, the recommendations that are given, but, you know, really 
encouraging your patients to think about what's in your food's food. What was in that soil that your food was grown in? Again, what chemicals were was it exposed to? And what type of environment was your food raised in? Because that is going to ultimately affect everything. That's going to affect yeah. your health as well. I think the and if I can give an example on that really quick too, the biggest thing is there's a recent article, but this is something we've been telling patients for a long time and a lot know about this is bottled water. Like something we educate our patients on is you may be seeing that bottled water that you buy in the store, or it's in a vending machine and maybe it's it's cooled down, but that bottled water has been on a journey. It was packaged in a plant that was probably not air conditioned. It's been in a truck or in a crate or in a warehouse where it was hot and it was hit and it was moved. And so this whole time with all these temperature variations and, you know, different variations in, in how it's been handled, you're going to get leaching of the plastic into the water. And so a lot of people who rely heavily on bottled water are also getting a lot of bisphenol A and a lot of other chemicals that happen to be endocrine disruptors, like we talked about the endocrine system, that are like bisphenol A in that water. And so, you know, being aware of this and, and really demanding, like, why don't we use more glass? Why don't we look into hemp and other renewable plastics? You know, it's really part of the conversation we have with our patients. Yeah. That's a wonderful example. You know, bottled water is so ubiquitous. And a lot more and more people are starting to drink out of reusable bottles, which is great, non-plastics, but it's really, that's a really unique twist on it. And it's really, it's really important. I like that. I'm environmental nutritionist. And now Dahlia, you're also been trained as a functional nutritionist. And can you explain for our listeners what that is and a little bit about the work you do with that? In my practice as a dietitian over the last five, six years, I've always kind of tried to take this deeper look into what's ailing my patients. I always try to ask how's your sleep? How's your stress? Different things, because I know that they're all going to ultimately connect. Yeah, I wake up every night at midnight, 1 a.m., 2 a.m. Yes, I crave salty foods. Yes, these are my trigger foods. And that will clue me into, on a deeper level, why that patient is gaining the weight that they came in. They might come in just thinking that they're going to have a consult with me for weight loss. And then they walk out realizing, okay, we're going to test for food sensitivities. We might have a hormone imbalance. We might want to try a detox. So I always try to dig deeper and find that root cause. These symptoms are all kind of just, again, branches from this tree. But I want to dig deeper and understand, okay, what are at the roots of that tree? What is causing all of these? Because ultimately, symptoms are all usually connected. So I have been able to have the wonderful opportunity in my latest position to be actually formally trained in functional medicine. So as a functional dietitian with functional nutrition, again, you're looking for that root cause. You're digging deeper. You are touching on principles not only of Western but Eastern medicine. You are using diet. You are using meditation. You are using nutraceuticals and exercise and just kind of an all-encompassing type of program. So it really is, I think, more comprehensive. And like I said, it's a larger picture and it's not compartmentalized. I'm not ever going to tell a patient, just have six ounces of protein and, you know, to have, you know, one cup of starch. And there are different practices for dietitians, but I have seen great benefits that my patients have felt in their health. And I really, really believe that functional medicine and functional nutrition is kind of our future. Most of my patients who come to me, they've tried every pill, potion, and 
medication that's available out there. They're tired of seeing so many specialists. They're tired of feeling worse year after year. And, you know, tired of realizing that, hey, I'm too young to be having all these diagnoses. So it really is getting at the root of it and preventing further issues. You also work with a lot of families that have picky eaters as well, Dahlia. How do you help families with really picky eaters? Yeah, so I was also very blessed in my life to work with a pediatrician and we learned a lot about feeding dynamics. And that really, again, at the core, oftentimes with picky eaters, that's at the core where the feeding dynamics might not be 100% up to par. Of course, you're going to also run into, okay, this child might have texture issues or this child might be tongue-tied or, you know, it might be having other reasons why they're not accepting different textures and flavors and foods. At the core, though, I would say most of the families that I work with are putting, I think, too much of a focus on food. And it becomes this constant battle between the child and the parents. And I always just tell my parents that I work with, what does a child control in their life? Do they decide where they go, with who, when, what time? No. The only thing these kids really have 100% control of is what they put in their mouth and swallow. So sometimes it's just them really trying to take control. And sometimes it's them just saying, no, I I said I don't want to eat it and I'm not going to eat it just because they want to say no. So we teach this division of responsibility and this is an amazing practice by Ellen Satter and she has written wonderful books that really help kind of guide parents along feeding children of all different ages and stages. But she teaches this division of responsibility as parents, adults, caregivers, teachers, anyone who's responsible for feeding a child. Your job is to just buy prepare, and serve healthy options. The parents, caregivers are in charge of where the family is going to eat, and that's it, and maybe what time as well. We are not in charge of telling that child how much they have to eat, if they have to take two, three, four more bites, if they like something or don't like something. I always try to encourage my families not to put preconceived notions in those kids' heads. Or, you know, a lot of times my daughter's friends will offer at play dates, I'll offer a child something that Leela's eating, and the mom already answered, oh, no, she's not going to like that. Well, give her a chance to. You know, don't put that thought in her head that she's not going to like that. So, again, leaving it up to the child to decide what they're going to eat, if they're going to try it, and how much. So no pressure. And we have just seen it work with our daughter, too. It's not a battle for us. If she says no, okay, cool. No, no worries. I wouldn't want someone to force me to eat something, so I'm not going to do that to her. So we've really tried to encourage and really nourish this healthy relationship with food for her. And an important part of that is not putting any certain foods on pedestals, such as treats and desserts. We simply don't have them in our house, and she understands those are special foods for special days. So when she goes to birthday parties and things, she gets plant-based treats. But, you know, she understands that. She understands those boundaries. It's not, hey, if you finish this one piece of broccoli, you're going to have ice cream. Again, because that puts broccoli down, that puts this ice cream on this pedestal and almost creates these food obsessions that kids create. Mm -hmm. So we've really tried to teach families how to do that. And we understand it's not always easy. It can oftentimes be easier to live not such a healthy lifestyle, but it's very intentional. We're very mindful and teach her to be mindful with her nutrition as well. And we are just seeing the benefits not only in her, but in our patients who practice this. I love that idea about not putting a certain food on a pedestal because when you do give that reward of a treat, 
it kind of thinks, okay, the vegetable or whatever you're trying to, whatever is nutritious that you're trying to feed your kid, that's lower than the ice cream or the piece of cake. That's a really good tip. I hope that'll help people. Now you mentioned plant-based. So how long have you both been whole food plant-based? So we've both been whole food plant-based going on seven years now. It was a progression, you know, mm-hmm. something, an analogy I like to give our patients is that, you know, you're climbing a health mountain and I think a lot of us come into it like, oh, you, you know, it's, it's almost like go to Mount Everest and I'm going to climb that today with no guide, no tools, <laughs> no, you know, gear. And you're insane, right? People would be like, that's impossible. So it's the same thing with your health and your, your lifestyle. You know, it's, you have this mountain to climb, but it's going to be so much better if you have the right gear and the right tools and the right guide. And then you're going to be taking selfies and having fun and it's going to be a good adventure. And just with that, you know, it's, it's taking it just step by step. So we didn't just overnight become these mm-hmm. whole food plant-based experts. It took time and it was progress and we slowly eliminated things. And and yeah, so I think the journey is probably in total eight or nine years because mm-hmm. it took us a good two years being vegetarian or pescatarian. Mm-hmm. And then, but almost seven years fully, yeah, vegan, plant-based, yeah. Excellent. So now what kind of conditions have you found with your patients that you might recommend a plant-based diet to? Do you think there's any conditions in particular that it might help? I call it almost a shotgun approach. It helps almost all conditions, especially any conditions you see a dietitian for. So, I mean, yeah, I found I deal more with Parkinson's and diabetes. So, and it, and it works wonderfully. I mean, it's kind of the same, I want to say structure and skeleton, but the details will change a little bit. But for a diabetic or someone with Parkinson's, definitely GI issues. It's so great. I mean, it's so beneficial. You know, you have over 85 plus years of research and peer-reviewed research behind this information. And so it's really, really a well-researched diet. It's really, and it's even more than a diet, it's a lifestyle. So there's, I'd probably say any and all conditions can benefit. And And definitely from the right whole food plant-based diet because we shy away from calling ourselves vegan because chips are vegan and Oreos are vegan. And oftentimes we hear, oh yeah, I was vegan and uh, I was so unhealthy, which is true. You can be. So it's really seeking out, again, those unprocessed whole foods that are plant-based and ensuring that you're including a variety. If you are only eating a handful of different vegetables, a handful, you know, just tofu and white rice every day, of course you're going to become deficient. So it's really being thoughtful, eating a rainbow every day, including different mm-hmm. grains, beans, seeds, nuts. But we've absolutely, like James was saying, so many conditions. My One of my favorite patients recently came to me. She's 82 years old and she has chronic kidney disease. She has hypertension. She has, you know, very mild diabetes, but she was in the end stages of kidney disease and she knew her next step was going to be diabetes. Dialysis, and that was her fear. And she was determined not to go on dialysis. So I said, all right, I'm going to help you. It's going to be kind of a big change. She was the one determined to climb that mountain right away. So I was ready to guide her along that. We got her tons of resources to take to her nephrologist, her endocrinologist, all of her specialists. I made sure she thoroughly understood how to balance that whole food plant-based diet and I'm so happy to say that in just four months, her all of her kidney labs, all of her renal numbers are improving. We yeah. would say there's almost yeah. nothing that a plant-based yeah, diet I at I least know. can't improve. So yeah, that's from patients that we've worked with who have cancer, that's kids, that's adults, hypertension, definitely so many gastrointestinal issues oh, yeah. can be mitigated 
and relieved from a plant-based diet, um, migraines, headaches, joint pain, gout. Big one is acne, too. Acne, yeah. And that's a huge one, too. So you can go in more like superficial issues, but still issues nonetheless, because mm-hmm. if you've you know, suffered with acne and severe acne, it could be quite debilitating. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the treatments out there can also cause many more symptoms that, especially a young person, if you're 18 through 25, you don't really think about and because they're going to hit you when you're 40, 50, or 60. So yeah, even things like acne, I mean, it has huge benefits. So now, say there's somebody with a sugar addiction, and they come to you, and they want to stop the cravings for sugar. How do you, like, wean people off sugar? And meaning more like the added sugars, not the sugars and fruits. Or I don't know if they have to even give up fruit. I've heard about diets like this where to get rid of sugar addiction, you have to get rid of all fruits for a while and then react. But Mainly the ones that are, and this is speaking from me because I'm recovering from this. I'm trying to go on the sugar detox and all this stuff. The refined sugars, how do you, and that's such an addiction nowadays. So how do you, how do you work with people to get them, and if it's a problem for them? You know, maybe some people don't have a problem with it. I mean, I sure do. So how do you work with people like that? No, that's a great question. I think, I think a lot of people do. And yeah, I want to make it very clear, refined sugar is basically like a type of added sugar. And I want to make it very clear that it's not the same as fruit sugar. I can't tell you yeah, how many patients we educate on that. And even other health professionals or people in the, the natural products industry, you know, added sugar is not the same as fruit sugar. And so it's very important to understand that. An analogy I like to give is a drug analogy because you take the coca plant, which is a plant that's been used for thousands of years by different indigenous tribes, you chew on the coca leaf and it would give you energy and it would help you, you know, doing your daily chores or whatever you did thousands of years ago. And along the way, we took the coca leaf and we made cocaine. And then from cocaine, we made crack cocaine. So this hierarchy of increasing the processing and the refinement of this product is very similar to corn, for example. You've had corn for thousands of years and it's, you know, helped populations thrive. But then in the last, what, 80 to 100 years, we've taken corn and we made corn syrup. And then from corn syrup, we made high fructose corn syrup. So it's very, very similar to cocaine and crack cocaine. It's um, a legal drug. In the sense that it's it's a drug. I mean, you look at the research on, on sugar and it's highly addictive. It's obesogenic. The more you refine and process, the, the more dangerous it gets. And so it puts you at risk for all these metabolic diseases, which we call metabolic syndrome, as well as, you know, uh, neurological issues, gut issues. So you just have this host of issues that arise and it's coming from this complete refinement of this food. And I want to also be very clear that even organic refined sugar, or if it's agave or organic cane sugar, Uh now the new one is organic coconut nectar. So, you know, Food companies become very, very keen and very smart on the trends, and they're going to evolve with them. But just because it's organic or it's coming from a coconut or it's coming from the agave plant, it still means that you're at risk for organic diabetes, right? It's still going to be detrimental to your health. So again, but this isn't saying that you have to never have added sugar. You're going to be a perfect little robot. But it's just, you know, being aware and being conscious that, you know, whether it's organic or if it's vegan or whatever, refined sugar is refined sugar. And you really want to be aware of of how much you're eating. And I think a lot of people are not aware. The average adult and child in the United States, they 
consume over 20 teaspoons of added sugar a day. And that's the average. That's the average. So some people, when I used to work with the pediatrician, some kids were eating upwards of, you know, 30, 40 teaspoons of sugar a day. And those were usually the ones who were having the school's provided breakfast and lunch. If you just kind of take a look and really write down what you or your kids might have throughout the day, it creeps in in little places, a little in the cereal, then some juice, and then, you know, fruit snacks, and a cookie and lunch, and then, a you know, another juice box, and a little here, a little, yeah, granola, and... You know, it it all really does amount to quite a bit every single day. So, again, a really helpful tip that we like to give is that stuff's all well and good. We are not those perfect little robots, but we try to limit it. And, again, home should be this secure, happy, healthy place. So you want to really ensure that you're not creating, again, those food addictions or feeling guilt and restricted in your own home. So keeping those treats outside of your house. Okay, we're going out to dinner tonight. Oh, let's have a treat. It's someone's birthday party. Let's celebrate with them. We're going to have some cake. But again, we're not having cake-like substances for breakfast and, you know, including them for lunch and dinner. It's really being mindful and being educated on how to identify the different ingredients. There are are hundreds and hundreds of different names they use for refined sugar. And just like James said, they know we're getting smart and we're catching on to them. So every day I'm sure there's a new there's name, a new so we can't figure it out. And then to pull it back to, to the original question, it's, it is. So the first step on beating your sugar addiction is just being aware on how much mm-hmm. sugar you're actually getting. It's that awareness. And we always say, don't read nutrition facts, read ingredients. And become aware of how much sugar you're actually intaking so you are then aware of your problem. Because if you end up calculating, so, and a, and a great way, and, and for those of you listening, you can write this down, four grams of sugar is going to equal one teaspoon of sugar. And so, the, but the way you're going to know if it's added sugar or if it's natural sugar is by reading the ingredients. So if in the top five ingredients, you're seeing words like dextrose and sugar and cane sugar, and there's even now there's organic brown rice syrup. So, you know, anything with syrup or, you know, those sugary words you can bet that a majority of that sugar in the product is coming from added sugar. And it's true. There's so many different names now. So it's hard to keep track. So, so many different. So, <laughs> and something cool too, I, I want to mention this, is a lot of people don't realize, again, it's making these connections and realizing that your whole body's connected, where I always ask my patients, what, what is saliva? And they look at me funny, like, what the heck are you talking about? Like, what is saliva? Well, it's, you know, we don't really think about this, but saliva is basically filtered blood. We have these little, in our, like, mandibular jaw, like, in there, we have these little filters. And it filters our blood and it makes saliva. And so if your blood is full of sugar, if, if it's going to affect your hormones and your cell signaling and everything, your saliva is then affected. The way you taste is affected. Your taste buds are affected. So you're more likely to crave and want more sugar however if you start to make these little changes and realize wow this yogurt has how many teaspoons of sugar this granola has how many teaspoons of sugar you start to kick that out your saliva changes your taste buds change you start to become more aware of the sweet tones in a mm-hmm. beet or you know and your brain chemistry changes and right. you stop craving them as much exactly And again, just like James was saying, the more sweet that you're used to having, the more bitter and the more foreign the vegetables are going to taste. So it's really, you know, consciously trying to swap out. 
as those, much as possible. And those bitter tones, those sour, bitter, you know, really savory, like something like a turmeric or something like a, the savoriness of a beet, those are things that actually kill the bad microbes and promote the good microbes. So, you know, the, the bad microbes are facilitated with all the sugar. And they're almost playing a trick on you. They're like saying, oh, this is too sour. This is too bitter. Don't eat that. Eat more of the sweet. And it's, it's <laughs> this crazy like feedback loop. And you got to just try and break that. Yeah. And the bad microbes, they're feeding off the sugar as well. Just like in your teeth when you get, you know, dental caries and cavities there. They're feeding off that sugar. That's the... Now, if somebody is pre-diabetic or now if they're or even like full-blown type 2 diabetes, or can they get help and reverse their condition? I, I'm assuming that pre-diabetics can, but say it has progressed to type 2, can they reverse it a bit with diet or is it too late? Oh, yeah. Let me let me clearly say that a majority of diet, diabetes, so let's, let's look at all the diabetes in the United States. So what research shows is 90 to 95% of those diabetics are type 2 diabetics, meaning that it is... 99.9% lifestyle factors that cause you to get pre-diabetes, type 2 diabetes. Okay, with that said, pre-diabetes, 100% reversible. Type 2 diabetes can also be 100% reversible, but there's a but. So the but is how far along you are and how much damage you've done to your body. So there's a certain point where you've done too much damage. And an example would be, you know, you're getting neuropathy. You're damaging oh, nerve yeah. cells. You're basically killing your nerve cells and your fingers and toes and, and all over your body. And that's why people need an amputation of a toe or a finger. Then that can lead to nephropathy, which is damage to the kidney. Once you damage your kidney to a certain extent, there's really no coming back. So, yes, I want to say type 2 diabetes, pre-diabetes is reversible. It's just the damage. It's just to what extent of the damage you've done, that is the only thing that can be irreversible. Hopefully that, that makes sense. Um, yeah. 95% are type 2. So oftentimes, type 1 diabetes clearly, you know, has a hard time reversing. However... Sometimes, because it's a child who's living with that disease, it goes mismanaged. So they're suffering from brittle diabetes, very unmanaged type 1 diabetes, because they're depending on their insulin to do all the work for them. And they're continuing to eat a very nutrient-poor diet. Oftentimes, we'll help type 1 diabetics better manage their diabetes, maybe require a little less insulin, maybe feel a little bit better, have less hospitalizations, have less just poor control of their diabetes Mm -hmm. because and to give a little more bad news but then i'll give some good news (laughs) with type 1 diabetes you may think well there's nothing i can do i'm just on insulin let me not really control my my diet what we're finding out then is you can then become a type 1 diabetic and a type 2 diabetic combined because you're on a you're type 1 who's taking insulin but if you are continuing to eat poorly not exercise not do these lifestyle factors you can then become insulin resistant to your medication so now you need more and more medication more and more insulin and your body's not listening to it because you're in such a bad place in your lifestyle so then you get type 1 and type 2 diabetes combined now that's the bad news but But the good news is even now we're seeing, even with type 1 diabetics, we're seeing that the environment plays a huge role. 
Now remember, like what, it, what we said earlier is that the pancreas is part of this endocrine system. We're being exposed to endocrine disruptors. A lot of times, if you can kind of cease that exposure or drastically reduce the exposure of endocrine disruptors, you can bring back some of those beta cells in your pancreas and you can start producing some insulin again. You know, it varies, you know, and this is very rare and this is pretty new, but we're seeing some bring back pancreatic function. We're seeing, you know, a drastic decrease in insulin, even in type 1 diabetics, and they're living way better quality of life. Yeah. I hope that helps a lot of people because, you know, and definitely the type 2 diabetes, it's pretty, it's pretty common. It's pretty common nowadays. And let's hope it can reverse. Let's hope that trend can reverse in the future. I think people are waking up a little bit, especially to the lifestyle factors and the refined sugar. Right. And even, and to give us a stat on that really quick is, is we are now roughly at one in two with some form. Yeah. It, it isn't. So a lot of the numbers you hear, oh no, it's, it's more like 30%, which is still pretty high, like one in three, but one in two is what we say for people with any type of insulin resistance or lack of insulin sensitivity or some kind of uh, glucose recognition issue is you you it's basically now at 50 roughly 50% of the population has some sort of pre-diabetes type 2 diabetes type 1 diabetes gestational diabetes or type 1.5 diabetes you know this is there's all these different diabetes and levels of diabetes and so when you take them all in combination you have these issues so yeah, it's look, looking roughly like 50%. So it's really alarming. And this is where, you know, the call to action is being aware. You know, it, it does start with reversing that sugar addiction. It goes back to being aware, have that awareness of what you're eating, reading ingredients and things like that. Yeah. And yeah, all this has progressed over just two generations, really, two to three generations. We used to call type 2 diabetes adult onset diabetes. Um, now it's just one of the types, one of the five types. Right. So it's becoming more common. I think it's also unfortunately becoming more normalized and it's becoming this thing that we just say, oh yeah, you know, when you're older, you're going to have diabetes. And it shouldn't be right. that way. Yeah. Because it wasn't it always this way. way. Exactly. No, absolutely not. So it doesn't have to remain that way. And I really hope that that can change. Mm -hmm. So too. Well, with people like you and more and more people, you know, you're waking people up and more and more people are, let's hope that that will change in the future. Now, Instagram is a place where you can find out a lot about nutrition. And I know there's kind of an Instagram world of many different, there's like what, celebrity nutritionists on Instagram and there's all different types. How does someone differentiate the information they're looking at? And now you guys are both registered dietitians and you're also, you know, you do holistic nutrition. And how, first of all, like, what is it like to have that title, the RD, in this kind of world where there's just these, a lot of them are uncertified. They don't even have a certification at all. Some do. And how does somebody sift through all that information that they see on Instagram? Because there's a lot of pretty pictures and there's a lot of really fun stuff. But what is basically what's based in science and what's not? What's going to help them and what isn't? For those kind of trying to determine themselves and establish themselves in the social media world is to really find your niche. There are so many people out there talking about so many different things. And again, some people, their main goal is to just put out really beautiful pictures and they're not so concerned with how healthy it is. Some are, you know, really focused on protein. Some are really focused on, you know, macros and different things. So I think for us that that was really important for us to figure out, okay, what's our niche? So our page at Married to Health, we're all about plant-based nutrition. We also put a focus on 
feeding families and really, you know, encouraging families to cook healthy. We show what we eat, what we feed our daughter. We try to share as much of that just science-based knowledge that we have and put out that credible information. So that way people can identify that when they're looking for those concrete science-based answers that, you know, we're a place to go. And not all pages are even trying to do that. Not all pages want to do that. Some pages just want to put out beautiful pictures and that's great. But yeah, you're you're really going to kind of speak to who your followers are and, you know, really kind of give them what they want. Right. And so I think, yeah, I think simply said is look for a link like if they can't provide at least one link for what they're saying or if Mm -hmm. you're seeing something on instagram that's like rub some ghee and salt on your face for this and it's (laughs) like uh wait a minute and if they can't provide at least one link or even to a case study which is one of the lower forms of of uh, references if there's not at least a handful of case studies of people that have found a benefit then don't do it, you know, or at least at the very least, look into it more yourself, Mm -hmm. you know, do your own research and don't just rely on something from Instagram because yeah, there's a lot of people who like the pretty pictures and want to just put creative stuff out there, but it's not really based in science. So you got to be careful with that. Yeah. Yeah. So I say just look for a link roughly. I mean, to simply put that. Yeah. In this age of Dr. Google, you see a lot of information, good and bad. So, again, like James was saying, do your own research. Find credible sources, peer-reviewed sources. And just, again, always Mm -hmm. with science also, look to who's funding that study. Because, of course, you know, if you're going to look at a study about beef and it's funded by the Beef Council, maybe not the most unbiased information. So, again, always just look for that credible science-backed information. Right. So I like, and you know, Dr. Khan uh, really speaks out on this, and he has a great approach, and I have the same approach, or we have the same approach, which is I want to first point out the the similarities we have. So with someone who promotes a whole food plant-based diet and someone who promotes a keto diet, I think we have a lot more in common than we don't, which is maybe surprising for a lot to hear, because the keto diet promotes no refined sugar, they promote eating more leafy greens, they promote eating more fruits and veggies roughly, you know, so we're, we're trying to do a lot of the same things, drink more water, exercise, you know, so there's a lot of similarities. And then where we start to differ is more on the amount of animal products, right? So a, a ketogenic diet is saying, no, no, your evolution and your, your physiology is wrong. Don't run off glucose, run off ketone bodies. And so you want to be in this in this uh, glucose deficit to where you're running off ketones, so you're burning fat, and you're using fat as energy. That's the basis of the ketogenic diet for those that don't know kind of the background. And so it's this idea that burn fat as fuel instead of glucose. However, if you look at our entire physiology, if you look at anthropology a little bit, and I don't claim to be an anthropologist, but... From what I do know and what we've researched is, look, let me ask you and the listeners, you know, what is the animal that can run the longest distance? Do you know, Don? Is it a cheetah? Or is that no? Maybe that's the fastest one. That's the fastest, okay. right? And I think hmm. that's what, what we go to. I don't know, actually. You want to take a guess? Uh, okay. Hmm. So it's... No idea. It's the human. Oh, wait, really? It's okay. Us. <laughs> I completely right. am yeah. thinking about what's a rabbit. Is it a... Turtle. No, I know. Okay. Oh, the human. Okay. Yeah. 
it's us. It's a human. So we are we are an animal, and we we run. We are able to run the longest distance. There's there's actually a race in I want to say it's like in Russia or it's in the Netherlands, I think, where they do this this annual race. You guys can Google it, look it up. Where they do a it's a it's it contains humans and horses, and they race each other. And I think it's going on for on the ninth year now. And out of those nine years, three years, a human actually beat the horse. And so this was in the longest distance running. And so when you look at human physiology, how we're made, you look at, okay, how we store carbohydrates. So we store carbohydrates in our muscle in the form of glycogen. And that's basically for this time-released fuel when we're running long distances. So, you know, the keto diet says, no, forget all that. No, 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 forget glycogen. Forget the fact that every single cell in our body runs off glucose, which is a carbohydrate, you're going to run off fat. And then the ketogenic people say, well, there's long-term studies. I recently read a long-term study. What would you consider a long-term study, Don? Well, I guess it depends. I would think something at least over 10 years, but I could be wrong. <laughs> right. No, that's good. Yeah. I, I, that's roughly where I would say too. The long and and this this was a title of a ketogenic study. It was a long term ketogenic diet. I, I don't remember the title exactly, but it had long term in the title. The study was done over a six month period, and so six months to, is not very long <laughs> at all. And so you know when you look at a long term diet, I'm interested to see. I have yet to see a ketogenic study that goes for ten years, fifteen years. 20 years. How long can someone actually be ketogenic, meaning they're not running off glucose, they're running off fat? And that's, you know, I would say not going to be healthy. And you look at a majority of the research out there, that's not something you could do long term. Don't think of this to kids with epilepsy, I believe. I think it's something like that, like it's useful for that, but that's a very small subset of the population. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And then again, you ask the question, well, how long is that good for? And because a lot of times, for example, we give something called an elimination diet, and that's to help kind of figure out what kind of uh, basically gastrointestinal issues you have and how we can best help that. But an elimination diet, we're not going to keep you on for a year, two years, five years, ten years. And and so that's somewhat similar with epilepsy is we're not going to keep them on the ketogenic diet for too long. It's just to kind of see how things are going. It's to kind of wade through some of the water and do almost a therapy to enhance certain aspects, but it's not something long-term that's done. Yeah. So that's the big difference. And I could probably talk more, but I think one last point is also what I like to call the second half of the story. Because, you know, so much in the news, so much you hear of like, eggs are good. No, eggs are bad. No, cheese is good. Cheese has protein. No, cheese is bad. And so, you know, you have to look at, you know, yes, our body needs cholesterol, you know, yes, to a certain degree, our body needs saturated fat, but the amount in these animal products, right? You're not just getting cholesterol and saturated fat. You also get trans fat, which we know is, is horrific for your body. That comes from an animal. And not only that, you're getting a lot of these fats you don't want. Let's also talk about what you don't hear in those studies on CNN or men's fitness or whatever. You don't hear about the environmental toxins that are also in animals. And so it's so funny in the context of a pregnant woman, we seem to all agree on this, right? When you're pregnant, we say, don't eat swordfish or shark or, you know, big fish, you know, avoid sushi because of the mercury and the heavy metals. 
okay? But somehow magically when, when we're not pregnant, we then say, yeah, let's go get sushi or yeah, let's go eat some beef. And, you know, and somehow we don't apply that to our life as a whole. And then somehow we don't apply that to other adults, right? It's only for pregnant women. But we have to remember what's happening is called bioaccumulation. So this bioaccumulation happens to all big mammals or animals, whether it's a big, you know, we gotta remember it's a big bluefin tuna or if it's a big pig on a farm. And this goes again to something I said earlier where you can't have a healthy environment without a healthy body, right? Or you can't have a healthy body without a healthy environment. And so this applies to your food. If your animal is unhealthy, then if you eat that animal, you can't expect to be healthy. And so this is part of that bioaccumulation. This is part of when you eat the animal, you're also going to eat the toxins it ate, pesticides, you know, you also get something called endotoxemia. So when they're kind of chopping up the animal in the big meat factories. They're not doing it carefully. They're not doing it uh, too consistently. There's going to be feces everywhere. That's why back in the in the 90s, you had that big jack-in-the-box E. coli outbreak, which set the standard for heating and reheating meat. But the idea and something everyone needs to understand is you can heat meat and kill the microbes, but those microbes create toxins. You know, you hear mycotoxin, all these different toxins that can be created, those toxins don't die because they were never alive. You can heat them, you could throw acid on them, you could do whatever you want, but they're not going to die because they're not alive. And so when you eat this burger patty or whatever, chicken breast, if the animal's sick, plus it's you know filled with antibiotics, plus it was maybe exposed to heavy metals and pesticides, and then you have those endotoxins, you're getting a huge inflammatory response. And that combined with the cholesterol, trans fat, saturated fat, et cetera, et cetera, creates this perfect storm where then you start to get atherosclerosis, right? You get those that calcification in your arteries and you know, et cetera, et cetera. You get diabetes, you're inflamed, your your GI system is inflamed, you know, you so it goes down this negative domino effect where you create this perfect environment for disease. So yeah, that was a long answer, but you see how it kind of all connects and it's this big kind of domino effect, yeah. No, that was actually really helpful <laughs> for people to understand. No, that was really good. I appreciated that because, and I'm sure listeners will appreciate it because there is a lot that goes into that. It's not just the fats. It's not just the cholesterol, like you said, which which, which we do need in, in certain amounts, but there's just so many other things that, right. that feed into it. And like you said, with the fact that it's not a one-size-fits-all, I think people don't realize that animals are the only, you know, food that produce cholesterol, and every person produces a different amount of cholesterol. Some people have familial hyperlipidemia, which means they just produce more cholesterol than another. So, of course, that person who's already overproducing or hyperproducing cholesterol is probably especially... Going to want to steer away from something like keto or a diet that's really, really high in that cholesterol. Well, thank you guys so much for joining the podcast today. Is there anything you want to add before we sign off? And I'll also get your contact info, but anything else you want to add about what you guys do? I guess I want to say our mantra, plants protect. I want to say that it's it's not about perfection, it's mm-hmm. about progress. So 
think back to that mountain analogy where, you know, as long as you're taking one step each day, that's great. It doesn't have to be this huge, amazing progress each day, but as long as you're moving forward, you know, you're not going to be perfect, but it's, it's not about that perfection. It's about progress. And I just would say that with that progress, you want to progress with those around you. It's hard to send a changed person into an unchanged environment. Um, and if you feel like it's beneficial for you, then your family will benefit from it as well. Right. And then be that example for your family, whether it's your immediate family or your extended family or your work family or your church family, you know, you make a big difference. I think we don't realize the impact we make and even the impact of voting with your dollar. That's huge. I got to shout that out. Mm -hmm. Well, you can change the economy and to shout something out too. I know we didn't get into organic. Maybe we could come on again and get more into (laughs) other stuff. But, um, but, you know, right now, what studies say is if we can get the organic market to 16%, I think we're roughly at like 7 or 8% right now. If we can get the organic market to 16%, we'll see a dramatic decrease in the price of organic. We'll see a majority of food companies going organic. And so it's huge, you know. And I think a lot of us think stuff needs to be 100%, right? I need to be 100% perfect. Mm-hmm. I need to, you know, organic has to reach 100%. Oh my gosh, that'll never happen. No, it's these little tipping points that happen in our life, in our community, in our economy, and you'd be surprised how little it takes. Mm -hmm. And it all starts with you deciding to make change. Right. Yeah. And so if I guess if if anyone wants to reach us, you can reach us at marriedtohealth.com. You can send us an email through there. You can follow us on Instagram. We're at at marriedtohealth. Facebook, Married to Health. We also have YouTube. And so we do all this to provide resources. We give a glimpse of our life because we are the health professionals that practice what we preach. We're not, you know, saying one thing in, in our with our patient and going home and doing another. So <laughs> we like to show and be and give more resources every day. So depending if you're signed up on our newsletter or on our social media, you can see what we do. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you very much, James and Dahlia for joining me today on A Teaspoon of Healing. And I hope to have you guys back. We could talk about organic or whatever you guys want. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And thank you for having us. Thank you. Oh, yeah. You're welcome. And thank you. Thank you. And have a good rest of the day. Thank you for listening to this episode of A Teaspoon of Healing. If you have any questions for me or for my guests, visit my website, teaspoonofhealing.com. Click on contact, fill out the form, and I'll get back to you. While you're on my site, you can read my blog, listen to previous episodes, download show notes, or transcripts. Well, stay tuned for next week's episode. I will have intuitive empath Morgan McKean on the show. You won't want to miss this one. Talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to A Teaspoon of Healing with Dawn Damari, your home for wellness and vibrant living. For more resources on wellness and vibrant living, visit us online at teaspoonofhealing.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Please consult a physician or other health professional before undertaking changes in lifestyle or wellness habits. The author claims no responsibility to any person or entity for any liability, loss, or damage caused or alleged to be caused directly or indirectly as a result of use, application, or interpretation of the information presented herein.